This is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission is to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gayakono, or the Cayuga Nation. The Gayakono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gayakono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gayakono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. On November 12, 2021, archaeologist Sarah Gonzalez from the University of Washington met with a panel of SIAM students and faculty to discuss community archaeology, capacity building in indigenous archaeology, and how these inform the running of archaeological field schools. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned for Radio SIAMS. Good afternoon. Welcome to another in the podcast series produced by SIAMS, the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. I'm John Henderson, the faculty host for today's podcast. In addition to SIAMS, I'm affiliated with the American Indian and Indigenous Studies Program, and I'm a professor in the Anthropology Department. Our podcast today features Dr. Sarah Gonzalez. She's an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Washington and Curator of Archaeology at the Burke Museum there. She's also an anthropological archaeologist, and that shows clearly in her focus on indigenous and community-based archaeologies. Her field projects have concentrated around Fort Ross in California and the Grand Ronde community in Oregon. They've involved a variety of themes, but always aiming to foster the engagement of indigenous peoples in archaeology and to integrate indigenous knowledge and methods into archaeological practice. One of the many admirable things about Professor Gonzalez is that she doesn't limit her contributions to archaeology to her own research and teaching. She's been very much involved in nurturing new initiatives for enhancing indigenous engagement in archaeology and in creating groups to operationalize and institutionalize those initiatives. She's a co-founder of the Indigenous Archaeology Collective and a founding board member of the Black Trowel Collective Microgrants Program which provides funding for archaeology students from working class and historically looted communities. The two papers of Professor Gonzalez that we've read for today are one she did jointly with Ian Kressler on unsettling archaeology of reservations, which uses reservations as an interesting window to explore colonial archaeology, colonialist archaeology. The second is jointly with Brice Edwards, the intersection of indigenous thought and archaeological practice, the field methods in indigenous archaeology field school, which is an, a really interesting operationalization of indigenous archaeology and collaborative archaeology. Welcome back to Cornell, Dr. Gonzalez. Um, I get to ask the first question. And so I'll sneak up on it a little bit with some preamble in proper academic fashion. Um, one of the things that's really heartening in looking at the, the landscape of collaborative archaeology and particularly indigenous engagement with archaeology is the speed with which those kinds of things are becoming common. Much faster, I think, than very many of us would have guessed even a few years ago. 
So for me, it's it's really exciting to look and see the enhancement of indigenous groups capacity to engage in and with archaeology, to see indigenous agendas being pursued, to see a whole array of issues that revolve around indigenous relationships to archaeology, the enhancement of indigenous agency in relation to their own heritage and in relation to the ways that they're represented in museums and various kinds of public presentations of history. I also see what seems to me to be an emergent quality to all those things. And that leads me to expect that the development of indigenous and collaborative archeologies span is likely to continue to be rapid. And my own personal hope is that as collaborative archeology span develops, we'll see more and more of what I think of as fully collaborative archeology. span and that is, to me, archaeology in which indigenous participants and non-indigenous academic participants are both involved in the articulation, the definition, the identification of research questions, and in the elaboration of field methods and analytical methods to pursue them. Seems to me that indigenous archaeology is a very good thing to whatever degree it's collaborative or isn't collaborative. But in terms of collaborative archaeology, the, the thing that seems to me to be most potentially interesting among a whole array of things that are potentially interesting in that future is this kind of what I think of as fully collaborative development of research design. Maybe it should be called a hybrid research design. And so the reason for that is that I think a hybrid research design of that sort is going to have different questions and different approaches than either indigenous ones or non-indigenous academic ones. And that's where, for me, the intellectual interest is going to lie. So finally, I come to the question part. And that is, do you think that that kind of archaeology is part of what the future of collaborative archaeology holds for us? And do you have any favorite instances of early successes along those lines that we could point to as exemplary? Well, first, thanks for that really warm introduction. I think one of the joys of doing something like this and being in conversation with colleagues is to hear yourself or hear their reflections of you. And it's always better than the elevator speeches that we ourselves come up with. Uh, I wanted to speak to two things here. And the first one, you mentioned how there's been this rapid development and I, of collaborative and indigenous archaeologies, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, I remember what it was like going on to the job market in about 2009, 2010. There was only one position that asked for an indigenous archaeology specifically, and that was here at the University of Washington, and that was a position that I, that I was fortunate enough to come into and um, come into this department. Um, right now, I have graduate students going on the market who practice indigenous archaeologies and other community-based archaeologies with other descendant and local communities. And right now, there's just everybody is searching for somebody who does indigenous archaeology, so much so that 
you know, the desire to have people who have this specialized training and understanding and knowledge of what it means to work with, alongside, and for an Indigenous nation or a descendant community. That's knowledge that um, not every program has experience in developing those students or ability to provide advice to them. So it's heartening for me to see the this current demand. It gives me hope for students who are coming out who have this training and this understanding of how to do archaeology in a different way. Um, but at the same time, it also makes me sad that more of our institutions don't already have people on faculty who do this work and who can train future generations. That's definitely where a lot of my um, initiatives have been here at the University of Washington. And of course, that work has always happened in collaboration with other colleagues, both within our archaeology program at UW and across campus for folks who are doing community-based participatory research with communities. For that second part of your question, um, do I think that this kind of archaeology is part of the future of collaborative archaeology? I think what you're, I think yes. <laughs> I think if we're thinking about what our ethical commitments are here in the 21st century, you know, adopting an ethic of do no harm means that we need to begin to build in informed consent for all of our research. And that's not just research that involves indigenous nations, but other local and descendant communities. Often I think what we see is we kind of kick the can down the road of our problematic relationships. And here I'm talking about um, our disciplinary disciplinary relationships that are deeply hierarchical in nature. You know, we can see these hierarchies play out and the abusive individuals. Um, I talked a little bit during my lecture yesterday or during the Q&A session about the rampant rates of, for example, sexual assault and sexual harassment in the field, in addition to abuse and other forms of harassment. And those things I think are symptoms of this larger problem of how people, how power works within our disciplinary relations and how people can amass power and use that power against others. I think that's a key element here. If we are reflecting upon these relations and how they impact you know, our everyday relationships with one another, our disciplinary practices from the method, from the field into the classroom. Um, I think that helps, that helps us assess like how we can do better going into the future. Um, you also mentioned this idea of like the hybrid research design. I purposefully use the, the wording of community-based participatory research because it really is like its own entity at this point. And it has been for several decades now. And for me, at least, it provides a language with which to articulate the problems of extractive research and those hierarchies that are associated with it and the tools and means by which to identify a more participatory and inclusive research practice that ensures that, you know, in working across epistemologies and ontologies, we can begin to see the intersections between these forms of knowledge and ask new questions. That for me is one of the most exciting things that has emerged from my collaborations with tribal nations in California, now Oregon, and also Washington. You know, it's, it's the ability to bring these different, you know, these separate areas and focal points of knowledge together to think and ask in new and exciting ways. And that's not an exclusive thing to working with an Indigenous nation. You know, it happens with the more that you diversify your knowledge knowers within your, within your group and or your, your scientific community, the wider and the more epistemically rich and deep your interpretations and your work can actually become. So I certainly agree there. And I would also kind of push back on this idea that 
indigenous archaeologies just are privileging the indigenous. I mean, I think that's one of the, the elements, at least, that I've seen work out with field methods in indigenous archaeology and with my prior research with the Kashaya Band of Homo Indians is that we come to this work as equals and we each see each other's like kind of knowledge gifts. That is our ability to create knowledge, to be knowers, as well as to be learners. And I think that's a really big, it's a really big element of this work. So that you're not just speaking with and from an indigenous perspective, or that you're just speaking with and from an archaeological perspective, that you're but that you are in a place betwixt these things. Hi, I'm Rafael. I am a second year PhD student in the anthropology department. I do Mesoamerican archaeology. And much like John, I will have to go into a preamble here. <laughs> the very first sentence of your paper with Edward says, the archaeological field school is the hallmark of archaeological education and training. I have to say my own experience as an undergrad did not reflect that at all. And I very much wonder if it has to be. I did my undergrad degree in Mexico where, well, good archeological education is both public and free. And we were expected to receive training as simply part of our, of the normal course of the degree. We'd have a summer for serving method and a summer for excavation. And we'd even receive a very small amount of money as a stipend. And yeah, when I came to the US to do my MA, and I realized that on top of paying US tuition prices, people were expected to pay thousands of dollars to do a field school. And that that field school held the key to CR employment, graduate programs, and I guess a certain credibility. I was pretty much horrified. I could not believe that that system existed and was so entrenched. And I have to say, your example of a field school is the one I have actually felt enthusiastic about. And you know, the incorporation of Freire, Hooks, and that seems like the way to do it if you're going to do it. But should it be done as it is in the first place? Can you repeat that last part of the question, Raphael? Oh, of course. Yeah, I have to say, like, the way in which you're doing the field school, incorporating a Freudian approach and also hooks seems like the best way to do it, absolutely. But should the field school be rethought or maybe abolished and replaced by something else, I wonder? I'm so happy you brought this up because, you know, the different models for field schools in your own experience shows us that these can be different and that how we are training archaeology students and like practitioners, actually, it needs to be do different if we want to have a wider body of archaeologists actually doing the archaeology. Because in your question, I heard two things really clear. The first is having something that's built into your regular course load. And the second thing is, is that that training doesn't cost extra. You know, like I think average price of field school is at least about $3,500, you know, in addition to potential living costs. Um, those are, those are significant costs to bear. I know as an undergraduate student, I went to UC San Diego and I couldn't do a field school. 
like my initial plan, I did study abroad for a year at the University of Sheffield, my, my third year in college. And my plan was to go into a field school there because they regularly did week long to two week long field schools during the breaks, during the fall and or spring break. But I was lucky slash unfortunate enough to be there when hoof and mouth disease broke out and all of the digs were canceled because of the danger of going in into contaminated farm sites. So that didn't happen. I came back to UCSD and the only field school option that I knew about was one run by a professor there and the cost was over $4,000. And my family just simply didn't have that money. You know, (laughs) I'm a first generation Chicanix, um, now faculty member, then students. And there was no way that I could think about how to get those resources. And instead I ended up doing an internship. I arranged for an internship at the Smithsonian just by cold calling people and saying, hey, do you have... Do you have any positions? And I did that because I knew that I couldn't get this kind of field training on my own. And that if I really wanted to go to grad school, which I really did, and I was applying as soon as I came back from England, um, that if I really wanted to do that, I needed to take my training, take training in my own hands and at least try to do an internship that might make me competitive. Now, for most students, you don't have those thought processes. Like, I don't even know how I came up with those things other than I've always been a very determined person and have never taken no for an answer. Those are the things that I've learned um, in being educated that when people tell you no the first time, that's often not, uh, that, that no often doesn't stand if you go, you go further up the chain of command and or hierarchy. Um, to come back to that question about how we can rethink this. I think that there are folks that are trying to rethink what a field training program can look like, either you know, through the model that we've used with field methods in indigenous archeology span by creating an emphasis upon ensuring that we're not just building knowledge with the Grand Ronde Tribal Nation and Historic Preservation Office, but we're building knowledge with students. This is something that's really important to see and to do and practice. And it's also a really hard thing you know, we get trained, when we get trained or and we become part of a discipline, we ourselves are disciplined in certain ways of being and doing. And trying to shake off, especially for faculty, and I'm speaking here of myself as well, to shake off that authority and to assume the role of being a student learner is a really difficult thing to do. But when you're able to do it, your opportunity to learn actually in <laughs> like exponentially increases. That's something that we often don't think about, you know. I often, doing workshops with students and, you know, teaching students is the best thing. Anytime I've had to like train other faculty, we always lovingly refer to them as like, it's like herding cats because sometimes being part of like these, you know, being disciplined in these ways, we lose that ability to just be a student and to not be directing this. So that's something that's, I think, a really important thing um, that we can do to change, to change up and unsettle these hierarchies that exist between students and teachers and learners and knowers. So I think that's one important part. And the other important part here is understanding that we need to offer more options to receive this field training. Especially now in the time of COVID, what I'm hearing reports a lot from locally through our uh, Association for Washington Archaeology and also through the Burke Archaeology Department um, on campus, we're hearing a lot from cultural resource management firms that they just simply don't have enough employees right now. And part of that is an issue of pay. But the other part of this is that they have really stringent requirements for what an archaeologist has to have in order to be hired. 
And part of this is drawn by what the Department of the Interior's requirements are to be listed as an archaeologist of record on projects. Um, those there's those regulations, and in some cases, states such as like Oregon, for example, this is a case that's often brought up, has even more stringent requirements. So that even if students are graduating from a PhD, they still can't be certified as an archaeologist by the State Historic Preservation Officer in, in Oregon. They need at least one full year of managing excavations, of managing a dirt project. And this, you know, we have to ask ourselves, does this like equal exactly what the requirements are for somebody to practice archaeology? Um, or can we change that? That's a higher level question. At a lower level, we here at the University of Washington and in the archaeology program um, within the anthropology department and also within the Burke Archaeology Department. And I keep saying Burke here, that's the Burke Museum of, um, of Nature and Culture. Um, we've been partnering with cultural resource management firms and the Association for Washington Archaeology and other local heritage managers to rethink what our master's level and PhD level training looks like. Um, as part of that, we're trying to arrange, and we are successfully arranging, paid internships that allow students to get experience doing field work for a CRM company and or historic preservation with and for an agency prior to graduation. We really think that offering that paid compensation is a really important thing to do. This is also something that other field schools are doing. I know the field school that the Society of Black Archaeologists runs on St. Croix. It's been co-directed by several different folks now. I think Ayana Fluellen, Justin Donavent, um, and Alicia Odawale. Um, and I think I'm forgetting one. <laughs> I think uh, Bill. I think Bill White has also co-directed that field school. Um, and in that case, they've been able to secure grants to ensure that students who come with them are fully funded and don't have to take a financial hit. Because the financial hit is both in how much the course costs and how much you're losing because you can't work over that summer. Um, one of the other successful things that I've seen folks doing is implementing a field training class in the regular term. So for most um, U.S. students, our regular terms are fall, winter, and spring. I'm on a quarter system or fall and spring for folks on semester systems um, because summer students tend to need to have employment and um, by offering a field course during the regular year, um, you're able to negotiate some of those. So those are all different options, I think, that we have available to us. And we're gonna see more and more of this cropping up. So like the really huge field schools that folks run that are really expensive and or have high food and lodging costs, I think we're gonna start seeing less of that in response to um, people questioning how we're training students and if we can be doing better. I'd also just plug a little bit here, the Archaeology Centers Coalition just recently launched a survey on um, field school costs and the burdens of taking field schools. And we should be uh, publicizing results of that somewhat soon here. We've got all of the data and we're working with it to try to, again, identify what are some of the other barriers that students, that students face. And the next part of that would we'll be working with them to figure out how we can do better and what kinds of changes we can advocate for within each of our own institutions that are represented within that coalition. Hello, I'm Maya Diedrich. I'm a postdoc associated with SIAMS and my research interests are in landscapes and livelihoods of Yucatan, Mexico. And I thought I would like to ask a question about kind of building on these, this conversation we've been having, 
about hierarchies in different areas of the field. I was interested in hearing more about building knowledge and narratives with communities and students, which is something that you were touching on and came up in the articles we read for today. And I was particularly interested in the relationships and conscientious kind of power negotiation or power acknowledgement and deconstruction that might go into that process. And because I do study plants and I was excited to see some of the plant remains mentioned in the chapter from the handbook, I was wondering if you might have an example relevant to that, but don't feel you, you need to go that direction. But I thought that the uh, berry seeds in the privy from the agency school uh, seemed like something that might uh, encourage discussion among the group. So just as one possible way to go with that. So you mentioned there that, that you're interested in relationships and how to be conscientious of these like power relationships. I can give a couple examples from field methods in indigenous archeology. span And also a caveat here, when we're talking about doing better and dismantling these hierarchies, they're all such a part of us and how we interact with the world that it really requires us to be very self-reflective. That is really think about how our personal practice and behaviors impact others. This is a skill that some folks are automatically better at and or have been trained to be better at, but it's an ongoing process. And so, you know, we try to do our best within the field school and we here, I mean myself, my co-directors at the Historic Preservation Office, and then all, all of our graduate students and undergraduate student team leaders who help with various aspects of the training for students. All of us, you know, we try to behave our best and at the same time, remain open to thinking about how some of the things that we do might impact others. Um, one of the examples that I can give here is that we play a lot of games at night. <laughs> we're camping, we're at the Ukshat powwow grounds. There's not a lot of stuff other to do other, you know, playing cards or board games, sometimes lots of crafting. I'm really into making friendship bracelets and or helping the historic preservation office prepare gifts for tribal canoe journeys. Um, and the games, the games really are something that students kind of come together and it helps build camaraderie. Um, as part of the field school, though, we have students also reflect on their own learning while they're in camp and while they're working for the Historic Preservation Office. And one of the first blog posts that we got was from a student who talked openly about their dealing with social anxieties and their fears about having to be around such a large group, a large social group of people. And that student, they described how, um, how competitive we were at games. And by we here, I mean my graduate student, now Dr. Ian Kretzler and myself were real competitive. And in that case, they were talking about, you know, the competitiveness is something that, that was helping them come out of their shell. But as my graduate student, Ian and I were reading them and offering suggestions, we turned to each other and we're like, are, are, are we that bad? <laughs> is this? And of course, the picture that she chose for the blog, it's Ian and I, my hands are raised. Ian has like this incredulous look on his face. <laughs> we looked at the photos, like, we might be that bad. Okay, we need to work on our competitiveness here because unless the student had felt comfortable sharing this, not just with us, but with a much broader community, we wouldn't have had that period to reflect and say, look, you know, while games can be a really great way to bring everybody together, 
certain aspects of them can also exclude folks, you know, folks who might not feel comfortable in a competitive environment, folks um, whose first language is not English, for example, a lot of the games that we play kind of rely upon wordplay or like knowledge of pop culture. So we've really tried to make the games an opt-in situation rather than like a formal opt-out situation. I think that's an example of like personal practice, how it can feed, how it can kind of filter down. And that, you know, might be a superficial example, but I think it's a really clear one of like the opportunities that present themselves for us to do better and to be more cognizant. The second example that I can point towards is in the second year of the field school, when we were doing our orientations with students, kind of, I was reflecting with my graduate student, Ian, about how we want like, any kinds of activities that we wanted to do to break the ice. And the last year, the first year that we had run the field program, we had reviews from students and one of them indicated something about that they didn't feel like they were safe because of yellow jackets. And I was like, you know, as somebody who's grown up on the West Coast, like yellow jackets are a thing in, in Oregon. It's the whole season. They can be really intimidating for folks. So it's not something really in my mind's eye. And it wasn't in, my, in Ian's mind's eye either. So we were reflecting on that and saying, can we do something better that would maybe help alleviate some of these fears? And in the course of like 10 minutes, we brainstormed an exercise where we would have students anonymously put down on note cards what their most, what they were most excited about for the coming field season, and also what they were most fearful of, or like what they were most concerned about. And then we broke up into small, again, we filtered into small groups, we distributed the cards, we read them, and as we shared with them, a lot of things came out that I would never know about. Like I like to think of myself as an open and approachable person that students can come to. And the reality was, is that there were so many shared concerns that wouldn't have otherwise, I felt like wouldn't have otherwise been addressed. There was a really eye-opening moment. So I think about half of our students, their biggest fear was getting stung by a yellow jacket or a bee. And I just, like I said before, like, this is not something that really crosses my mind a lot because I don't have a, you know, I don't have a personal reaction to them. And then other things also came out, things like, you know, I have severe social anxiety and it's, it might, it's really difficult to be around a lot of people all at once, or I'm really concerned about how friendships are going to develop and if I'm not going to be included within them. So there were a lot of, you know, really heavy things, but things that we could also respond to. So as part of the second part of the activity, I had, we broke up into new groups and I had students take all of those collective anxieties as well as excitements, like things that they were excited about and have them start drafting, um, I would say protocols, not rules, just drafting like what are some, you know, shared sets of understandings that we can agree to that will help us preserve our excitement and minimize our concerns. And from that, it was just, it was a really wonderful thing. That's where we had, where we created our first kind of guidelines for um, FMIAs, like field and relational practice. So, you know, things like um, don't sit on your feelings came up that you know, some students had suggested. Others um, were about, you know, uh, remember to step up and also step back. So there were things there that students had prescribed that would help us manage a lot of our social relations. And some of them, you know, each, it's always interesting to see each new group come up with their own unique ones, but also kind of also point back to some of these other common um, rules of engagement, if you will.
And then you also asked a question, Maya, about plants at the Privy. This is like, this is one of my favorite things. When we first started getting some of the results back from our archaeobotanist, Dr. Joyce LeCompte Mastenbrook, we were so excited. Actually, I think she called us on the phone, us being all like our lab. Um, it was like, we found berries. There's like possible huckleberries. There's, there's definitely strawberry seeds. This is like such a wonderful thing. And indeed, as we've shared the early botanical evidence with folks in community, I mean, it's not a surprise that there's berries there, but it's also kind of a surprise. You know, one of the things that was really controlled at the school, especially in its earlier years, were what foods were served and what foods were allowed at the Grand Ronde Agency School. This is, a, this is a common experience in almost all of the Indian boarding schools is that what you were fed was designed to quote unquote civilize you. And in Grand Ronde School in the archival record, we can see the tension between community advocating for traditional foods like salmon um, and the responses to both to the superintendent of the school and from the BIA office. There's one um, archival document that really stands out that the superintendent of the school was asking the BIA to, to be able to distribute um, oranges and nuts and candies to the students before Christmas. And the BIA responded that absolutely not, they were not deserving of those foods. But at the same time, we also see in the yearly request from the superintendent that he's ordering, I think over 400 pounds of salmon for the student to be served. And that for us really stuck out. Salmon is what's referred to by Grand Ronde and many other communities here in the Pacific Northwest as a first food, as a food of particular spiritual importance. And that should, that, you know, it's the people's food and they're very connected to it. So there's like that document itself that also gives us like some of this tension between what community was demanding and how the BIA was responding and how those two things worked together. Um, certainly in the latter years, and I think the privy is, is most certainly associated with the early 20th century. So to see that there's there were lots of berry seeds, that there were some other traditional like medicines coming up within the privy was a really exciting thing. And also, you know, the schoolhouse property isn't very far for where you go to pick huckleberry and blackberry and trailing blackberries and, and salal berries and all of these other wonderful berries. Hi there, I'm Veronica. I'm a first year um, MA student in the science program and my research focused around foodways and identities. So I very much appreciated that last little anecdote there. Um, I was kind of curious a little bit if you could expand about like from your first season of the field school to like the most recent season and maybe like any the upcoming season. I don't know if you're planning on doing field school like this coming year or not or you know, next couple of years. Um, what have been like some of the biggest changes that you have noticed in like thinking about like how you run the program, what kind of material you incorporate into it, um, and like what have been some of the things that have informed those decisions as you like transformed either like, you know, what kind of like academic like articles and stuff or like what kind of community engagement um, is being done. Um, if you could expand on that a little bit, that'd be great. Thank you. We started out what I thought was very um, glampy <laughs> uh, and we've continued to add to our comfort each year. And I think it's important here, again, this might seem like it's a superficial thing, but when we probe deeper and you talk to archeologists about their memories of the field and what it means to be in the field, you often start to get these masculinist 
like proclamations like, oh, you got to get dirty. You know, you've got to like work the hardest. You've got to carry the most buckets. Like people really celebrate the deprivation that they experienced in the field. Like we only ate rice and beans and those were like the only things, no proteins, or we only ate once a day. These things get really celebrated. And it's been really important for us to create an environment where students don't have to struggle, where they're not forced to be go in line with these kinds of like braggadocio, like, you know, I can handle anything and I, I'm really tough kinds of situations. So like I said, the first year out, we thought that things were like pretty posh. Um, but each year, <laughs> it's probably because of me more than my graduate students each year, you know, we're doing our Costco and supply trips and like, do we want to get an extra tent for over the tables? That was what happened second year. We, we got tents and we put up like walls to help block the wind. The wind comes up every single afternoon at the Oxiat Power Grounds. Like it just funnels and filters through this gap that you have near Spirit Mountain. And, you know, the first year, I don't know how we did it, but we survived eating. You know, I think we were all like hunched over our plates to keep them from flying into our faces. <laughs> Nobody complained. We didn't really think about it. And the next year when we did this, again, Ian and I, and then my other graduate student, Yoli um, Gondoli had joined us. Like, what were, what were we doing last year? How did we not think of this? So each year we asked students for suggestions about what would make their life easier in camp what would make them feel more at home for the time that they're there. And we tend to, we've tended to add to it. So now we've gotten very fancy. We've got like USB LED lights that like light up the tent. So we don't have to live in darkness after the sun goes down. There's a lot of other kinds of things like that, that we've incorporated. Um, the other things that we've incorporated, like I said, are kind of the ground rules or understandings that students have for each other. That wasn't something that we had in the first year and in the second year and reflecting on our reviews and evaluations and comments. We just we kind of dreamed that one up really quick and it's served us well. Um, in the last iteration of the field school, we were having a lot more interpersonal conflict that was arising. And in that case, we brought in another exercise to help clear the air. And it was just reflecting upon, it was as simple as reflecting upon, these are our stated values and how we're saying that we're treating each other. What are the concerns that you've seen emerge and what solutions can we, can we offer for them? So it's those kinds of things that we implement um, to kind of take a pulse, what we call um, assess and readjust. That's it's kind of like one of our philosophies here. We, we've implemented a lot more of that into the program to identify people's concerns and or their, the issues that they have to try to resolve them in real time, rather than having people let resentment and other things build up between them. Um, in terms of how we run it, the other material difference that we've had is We've expanded the team of graduate and undergraduate team leaders. So this was a really important thing. The first year it was just Ian and myself, and then the Historic Preservation Office also lent some material support. But now we, now we tend to have two to three undergraduate team leaders that help us, as well as um, we've also had about two to three graduate students, sometimes four graduate students join us. And adding that has allowed us to go more in depth on our field training workshops. So that's something that we've always had, um, but typically students were in larger groups. And now when we go through and, and or introduce a new technology or a new field method, you know, students are in teams of like, you know, there's, there's an undergraduate and a graduate team leader, plus like two to three undergraduates with them that are taking the course for the first time. And that's made a really big material difference in ensuring that everybody feels comfortable 
with each of the methods that we use before we go on. Hello, my name is AJ. I'm a second year at the MA Archaeology program at Cornell. And my research interest is community archaeology. And right now, as part of my master's thesis, I'm doing a collaborative project in Turkey at the archaeological site of Sardis uh, with local school children and teachers and, and the local artists. And um, my question is about integrating some of the principles of indigenous archaeology to Middle East specifically, um, because in in the Middle East, like we see some like aspects of like colonial and imperial archaeologies like being continuing, especially in terms of our relationships with the local communities. And I was wondering, as a student who's learning about indigenous archaeology and who's trying to incorporate some of its principles to, to Turkey specifically, um, what do you think that some of some of the indigenous archaeology or collaborative archaeology methodologies are applicable on a on a global basis, um, especially when working with like non-descendant and non-indigenous communities. Thank you. The first thing that immediately pops to mind is Sonia Adelaide. Her dissertation research at Chital Huyuk. I mean, that is a perfect example of how you take the values of an indigenous archaeology and you translate them into another context. So, you know, a lot of these, the techniques that are used are not that different. It's, you know, creating a context in which you have informed consent, in which you are building people's capacity to be able to engage with the heritage-related product, project and or research. It's building relationships with local community. And it's also understanding local power dynamics. This is a really important thing that I talk about pretty frequently, is that in order to do good archaeology, you also need to be a good anthropologist and put on your ethnographer's hat especially when you are working in a community context, either collaborative or community-based context, you have to understand how power works within the communities that you are going to be working in. This is often where a lot of the critiques of community archaeology is the larger umbrella of people trying to work with local and descendant communities. You know, the, there's a, we don't define what community means enough. Working in a North American context, and especially, and actually, no, working in a U.S. and a Canadian context, this is very clear. With First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and also tribal nations, each of those has a government. I have a historic preservation office to work with. That's the office that is charged with a mandate by the nation to care for and protect heritage. In, in other contexts, like in Central America, in Mexico, South America, like in Turkey, you don't have these formalized governmental structures. And that's not to say that things are better because you just because you have a government doesn't mean <laughs> that you don't need to understand how power works within that government and how that government relates with the local community members, like in different factions of the community. Those things are always very important. But it becomes a little bit more challenging when you're in a more amorphous organization like or context where folks are um, organized differently and along different axes. So I think that's a really important thing that you have to keep in mind about how things will change. Um, the most important thing of how things will change, working in the US and Canada, Indigenous nations are sovereign nations. They mar they're sovereign nations within a settler state and nation, but they are sovereign. 
Indigenous people's sovereignty is not recognized across the globe equally. That makes for a different context of working. In Turkey, I'm not as familiar. Most of what I know about Turkey comes from Sonia and my former grad colleagues who were at Berkeley and had worked on the Çatalhöyük project. So I can't say much more about that situation other than saying that Sonia has done it really well. And it consists of thinking about these other things. How do I dismantle hierarchy? How do I create a more inclusive and participatory practice? If doing that is not... Um, something that is easily done or even achievable within the various forms of community that you're working within, then, you know, that's something that people have to take into consideration. I hope that answers your question. It's a really, we got to be good ethnographers and we got to be ethnographers of power and understand how these things work. And at Grand Ron, we do that quite a lot. And the Historic Preservation Office indeed has to has to do that because they represent a nation that is itself very heterogeneous. Not everybody has the same idea of what heritage means. And that's compounded by the fact that you have so many different communities who were brought together onto this little parcel of land onto the 61,000 acre reservation in 1857. So I think that's something, you know, the Historic Preservation Office keeps that in mind. They have multiple different ways that they engage with the with local tribal members, those who live on reservation, those who live off of reservation, those who are connected to different um, to different ancestral territories throughout the state. And they regularly consult with them. So that's something that was really important to to me as I was starting the relationship that we were able to understand these things and also understand what are going to be the potential obstacles that we have to increasing participation for the broadest segment of the tribal community as possible. It's amazing how fast time goes by when you're part of a fascinating intellectual interchange. So we are in fact out of time. So all that remains is for me to thank Professor Gonzalez on behalf of Cornell and Siams and the panel for coming here and spending 45 minutes with us, sharing insights and giving us perspectives that we wouldn't have been able to get from your publications as rich as they are. And so I think we all go away better educated and enriched for the experience for which we thank you very much. Thank you all for such wonderful questions. You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. This is our final episode for 2021. Stay tuned for more discussions from Radio Siams in 2022. Radio Science is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.